is called Zen is Not a Finished Product. I know it's a slightly odd title. But at the end of a retreat that we led a couple of weeks ago in Mexico, uh, one of the comments um, that came in the feedback at the end was the person noting how he came to understand that Buddhism was not a finished product. In other words, it's something that is continuously um, in a process of transformation and change. And yet very often when we encounter Buddhism or let's say one of its many um, manifestations, we often get the idea strongly presented to us that what we have here with say Rinzai Zen in Japan or the Kamakagyu tradition in Tibet whatever it might be, this is the way it is. And every particular institution that we go to of that school, every book we read of of that persuasion will impress upon us a certain consistency, a certain constancy, both in a body of ideas and teachings, but also right down to a certain aesthetic. In other words, we walk into a shrine room or a zendo and we can tell at first glance that we are in a recognizable place. It conforms to a certain model, one that we are at least led to believe has been repeated in this way for hundreds of years. Now, there may be many good reasons why this has uh, evolved in this way. Um, it's given societies a certain sense of continuity, a certain sense of tradition, a certain sense of constancy in the midst of an often very fluid and changing and disturbing world in which we live. But also, and particularly at times of transition such as ours, uh, this notion of Buddhism and its different schools as being somehow finished products, I think is a problem. Now, one of the things that uh, we are, I think, privileged with um, in our post-European Enlightenment um, culture is a keen sense of uh, historical consciousness. In other words, we are aware of how different uh, forms of civilization and culture and religion um, are not things that have existed in a particular way since et eternity, but are actually the products of um, historical, social, economic, religious, sometimes geographical conditions that generate particular forms at particular times, at particular places. And some of these forms take root and survive, and in doing so, tend to become rather fixed. So when, for example, um, we were, uh, if, for example, we were asked, well, why is Japanese Rinzai Zen so different from the Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism, I suspect most of us would say, well, because 
the conditions under which those forms of Buddhism emerged were terribly different. One was um, medieval Japan, the other was um, ancient Tibet, and consequently those forms of Buddhism are quite discernibly different uh, things, different entities. But that's a very um, modern way of looking at things. And the fact that it might seem to us obvious betrays how much we have been conditioned to see the world that way. That for many traditional Buddhists, probably most traditional Buddhists, that would not be the obvious explanation at all. The obvious explanation would be that if I happen to be a Nyingmapa, then the, the reason my tradition is different from that of Rinzai Zen is because we have the truth and they, they don't, or vice versa. Um, I've even once was at a conference where I presented these ideas to uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And even he had quite some difficulty getting round that idea, which surprised me, to be honest. But again, we need to take account of how we ourselves are formed as cultural creatures. We're also the products of our own history, um, of our own evolution as a society and as a civilization. And this will be what, it, what will make the difference as Buddhism or the different Buddhist traditions uh, encounter uh, modernity, or we might even say today post-modernity. Something else is going to happen. We don't know what, but I feel that it's fairly undeniable given even a cursory glance at uh, the history of Buddhism to see how in each new historical and uh, cultural um, situation something new emerges. Now, one of the most striking examples of the transformation of Buddhism is what happened when the Indian monks started being invited to China for a different range of reasons, beginning around the, the second century of, of the Common Era. And it took about three or four hundred years. But at the beginning of the Tang period, which is about six or seven centuries, suddenly something broke through in China, which was a distinctive Chinese form of Buddhism. There were actually several, but the one I want to focus on, given the nature of this retreat, is what we call Chan, or better known, of course, as Zen. And in many ways, uh, Chan is uh, an extraordinarily good instance that illustrates how when two very different cultures collide, that they then generate um, through the genius of the people who are involved in that collision uh, something um, which both has its roots in this case in Buddhism in Indian Buddhism but also in, in, in indigenous Chinese thought and culture a new form a synthesis one might say which we call Chan or Zen 
Now, one of the um, striking features, particularly of early Chan, and throughout my talks this week, I'm going to be concentrating primarily on uh, the, the, the Tang period. In other words, the early uh, Chan masters or Zen masters who lived from about 700 through to about 900, is that they were very, um, in a sense, alert to the importance of trying to, to, to catch and to stay alive to the elusive, uh, unrepeatable, slightly ambiguous, maybe even absurd nature of life as it pours forth in its myriad ways. There's something about the Chan tradition um, that I've always felt a very keen affinity with, and that is um, its playfulness, its willingness to um, acknowledge and to celebrate um, the quirkiness of life, rather than to seek to impose or to uh, raise up to some privileged status um, a set of religious or metaphysical doctrines and beliefs. And even today, we find um, this to be very much one of the distinguishing features of Zen, uh, of the koans, of the quirky stories that we get between a teacher and a disciple, some of the zaniness, again, not just in the teaching, but also in the aesthetics, uh, some of the brushstrokes, some of the self-portraits, for example, of, of Hakuin, or some of the beautiful paintings of Sengai, who just drew with quick brushstrokes frogs and leaves, things that would be quite unimaginable um, in an Indian-based Buddhism, in India itself or in the cultures which have been most influenced by Indian Buddhism, namely the Theravada countries of Southeast Asia and the Tibetan cultures of Central Asia. The Chinese brought to Buddhism uh, a kind of a concreteness, a kind of love of the specific in all of its um, ambiguity and density and oddity. Now this, I feel, is very much in tune, albeit refracted through a distinctively Chinese mindset of the Buddha's a core insight into paticca samuppada, in other words, dependent origination, um, or codependent arising, or conditionality, or as I prefer to call it simply, contingency. Now, in the um, early texts of the, of the Pali tradition, um, we have the Buddha's own account of his awakening or his enlightenment. And particularly the, the account we find in, in a text called the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, which is the I think it's the 26th or the 28th discourse in the, the middle length of sayings. The Buddha is very explicit about this. Uh, for him, the awakening was simply an awakening to Paticca Samuppada, conditioned arising, contingency, conditionality. 
nothing else. There's no mention of any kind of absolute truth. There's no mention of any kind of uh, transcendental reality. There's no hint whatsoever of anything that we might compare to God. There's no kind of big mind or one mind or true mind or any mind with a capital M. There is simply a waking up to the flux of events themselves and how this flux is a process of, 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 of causally related interconnected things which can barely be called things because they arise, they vanish, they transform, they mutate. There's nothing standing still. There's no ground of being, uh, no whether that be mind or whether it be God or whether it be the absolute that somehow supports the whole show. There's nothing there. There is just pure contingency and flux. And this is, um, for me, and again, very much based on these uh, earliest accounts, what was radical about the Buddha's awakening. And it went completely against the current, or against the stream, as he himself says, of all the contemporary ways of thinking about the purpose of human life, the nature of the universe, the structure of reality, that was not only prevalent already in his time, in the Hindu or the Upanishadic tradition, but in many ways continues to be the sort of default assumption of most people who consider themselves to be following a spiritual or a religious path. The Buddha broke with that. But that's not to say, of course, that such elements, in other words, God and the various substitutions for God, did not manage to find their way back in. And I think you can even see this in Zen, which arguably was one of the traditions that had the least room for this kind of language. And although you don't find it hardly at all in the Tang period, in other words, the golden period, really, of Chan, it's not long before we start getting ideas like that of the one mind or the radiant mind or, um, or something like that. Or Varachana Buddha who somehow props up the world as described in the Avatamsaka Sutra, for example. Now, the language of Indian Buddhism is, um, because it's Indian in many respects, almost invariably rather abstract. So the Buddha speaks of conditionality. He speaks of contingent events. But he doesn't speak of frogs, of jars, of blankets, of blades of grass, of leaves of trees, of rooks cawing. And yet, in many respects, to make the idea of contingency or conditionality real, we have to instantiate it in the actual uh, phenomenal experience we have 
of sitting here, say, for example, in meditation. But what we're in, what what allows an idea like dependent origination to have any value for us is the fact that it is um, in evidence in the actual arising of feelings in our body, of pains in our knees, in the sounds of the birds outside, in the taste of the food we eat, in the way we brush our teeth. That is where, in a way, conditionality becomes concrete. Let me give you an example. This is a fairly famous story. Um, it's often cited in the Koan collections. It concerns two monks, one of them called Matsu, and the other his disciple Pai Chang. Uh, for those of you who have a Japanese Zen background, that would be Baso and Hyakujo. Matsu and Pai Chang went for a walk. They strolled down, they were living probably on Mount Nanhue, went down to the river and were walking along the river bank. And then Matsu stops and says, What's that? And Pai Chang says, I think it's a wild duck. And they both stand there for a while. And then Matsu says, um, Where's it gone? And Pai Chang replies, I think it must have flown away. At which point, Matsu grabs Pai Chang's nose, twists it, Pai Chang yells in pain, and Matsu says, but when did it ever fly away? You see, you don't get it. <laughs> because you made exactly the same mistake as Pai Chang. Um, we, we, we may come back to this but, but, but the point but the point is that we have a, a language here which we cannot imagine finding in an Indian or a Theravada or a Tibetan Buddhist text it's extremely quirky it's extremely ambiguous and it's highly concrete it's about ducks and about noses and about noses being tweaked it's it's coming right back to something very immediate something very specific when when you when i when i tell that story uh, we probably if i'm telling it well can imagine ourselves on that riverbank we can imagine hearing the call of that bird. We can imagine the puzzlement of the two men. We can imagine them looking into the reeds. It all becomes suddenly vividly alive. Now this, of course, is in many respects um, the legacy or the influence, let's say, of, um, of Taoism rather than Buddhism. And Chan is essentially a fusion um, of a Taoist sensibility. In other words, a sensibility informed by Chuangzi, Lao Tzu, the great Taoist uh, thinkers, and their love of the specific and the concrete. 
with a Buddhist sensibility for insight, awakening, understanding, questioning. And here, in these stories, these two traditions achieve uh, a marvelous fusion. And this we call Chan. It's very distinctively Chan. Another element that becomes, I think, very prominent here, which we would find less emphasis on in the Indian traditions, is the primacy of astonishment, of questioning, of curiosity, of puzzlement. The whole episode hinges around being put into a state of questioning and uncertainty. What's that? It's a duck. Where's it gone? When did it ever fly away? All the key moments in that uh, dialogue take the form of interrogatives, questions. And this, I think, points very much to how in Chan there is a return back to the primacy of questioning. The primacy of allowing yourself to be deeply puzzled and recognizing that in that not knowing, in that puzzlement, in that uncertainty, lies the seed or the potentiality for a sudden resolution, a sudden insight, a sudden waking up. If our spiritual or religious life is founded on beliefs, on convictions, on certainties, on doctrines, what we've done, apart from give, us, give ourselves a certain consolation, is that we've somehow numbed or dulled that capacity to be astonished, that capacity to be confused. And remember, conf questioning, inquiry, confusion, bewilderment, doubt, these are all very much of the same order. And this is what we value in the practice of Chan. The letting go of opinions, as it were. The willingness to give priority not to what we know and believe, but what we don't know. What we're radically uncertain about. And of course this goes a lot further than the question as to whether there's a duck in the reeds. And this is actually where Pai Chang somehow went astray. Because the real question that Matsu was asking him probably didn't have anything to do with ducks at all. It had to do with Pai Chang. It had to do with the, the question of Pai Chang's own life. You know, who is that man listening to that duck? And when he says, it's gone away, it's flown away, he twists his nose and says, when did it ever fly away? In other words, your consciousness, your awareness, your presence in this moment, that's what I'm interested in. What is that? What's going on? And that is what we try, as it were, in this practice, to, to always keep ourselves open to. That, 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 that basic um, uncertainty and confusion as to what on earth is happening. It's allowing ourselves to, 
um, have the, the courage, really, uh, to drop whatever we believe about Zen or Buddhism or religion or philosophy or whatever it is and just get back to the primary questions. And the primary questions can find many forms. In Western philosophy, it might be the question, why is there anything at all rather than nothing? And each of us will perhaps have a, a form of words that evokes that kind of uh, existential tingling or, or reverberation within our bones somewhere about the sheer strangeness of things, the, the, the oddness that we're here at all, that human beings have evolved on this earth. And here we are sitting in this room, you know, these naked apes, you know, looking at our breath, you know, for hours on end. Very strange thing to do, really. I mean, we rationalize it and give it all sorts of spiritual importance. But just step back a bit. It's kind of weird. <laughs> now, religion, of course, of all kinds, is very averse to this kind of weirdness. It would rather the world be described and defined and um, registered in a nice coherent set of ideas and doctrines and dogmas and it seems that no matter what kind of um, counter elements you introduce like Zen has done you know kill the Buddha that all of this nonetheless can still become domesticated and normalized and so we end up once again with if you go to Asia, many of the, uh, the, the Zen uh, traditions, the monasteries and the temples and so on, are of rather conservative um, bastions of religious belief and all of the other functions that religion has in modern-day Japan. And in fact, a lot of the Zen teachers from Japan who came out to America and to Europe very often did so because they felt that Zen in Japan was kind of finished. So we often ended up with rather um, uh, you know, slightly outrageous characters, which is again a mixed blessing perhaps. But again, we need, I feel, to look, to, 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 to try to see this process within the terms of Buddhism's own account of how things are. And so going way back before Zen now, the Buddha described endlessly the nature of the world to be impermanent, in other words, transient, changing, to be dukkha, usually translated as suffering, that's certainly part of it. There's something tragic about the world. There's something unreliable something flawed, something imperfect, something never quite the way we want it. Also to notice that the world is somehow selfless. It actually is entirely uninterested in me and what I consider to be mine, or anybody else for that matter. There's something uh, rather uh, disconcertingly impersonal about the processes of life, 
whether we consider that in terms of the, 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 the physics or chemistry or biology, it's only really skittering along on the surface of human psychology that the phenomena we call egos and selves begins to make a rather fleeting apparition. But the very stuff of life um, is entirely indifferent to our particular interests and concerns, me, which I think of as such an important thing. It's all I think about, really. <laughs> but that's really just an enormous conceit. And so it should come as no surprise, therefore, to, um, uh, to recognize that uh, all the forms of Buddhism too, like Zen or Theravada or any school, is likewise impermanent, unsatisfactory, impersonal, contingent, empty. And yet, strangely, Buddhism is often reluctant to ascribe those characteristics to itself. Yes, all conditioned things, it will say, in its lovely abstract fashion, are impermanent in this, that, and the other. But rarely is that critique applied to the structures of Buddhism itself. Buddhism, too, is, is dukkha. It's, it, it's a flawed, um, unsatisfactory, um, inadequate, unreliable structure. It has its virtues, definitely, but we certainly don't want the mistake of somehow reifying it or making Buddhism into an end in itself. It's merely a means for our own understanding, our own awareness, our enlightenment, our liberation. But in itself, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not terribly important. I mean, the Buddha uses this famous image of the raft, that the Dhamma, he says, is like a raft, that imagine if you had a man who um, built this raft, used it to cross the river, but then when he got to the other side of the river, he insisted on carrying his raft with him, even when he didn't need it anymore. And the monks say, oh, well, that would be stupid. But that's exactly what we do, is that um, instead of seeing uh, the Dhamma, the teaching, the practice, the institutions as, as, as means to get across the river, we in begin to invest them with an importance that, in a sense, they don't deserve. And we've become rather attached to our particular school or doctrine or tradition. And we'll even maybe argue bitterly about it, or we'll fight to defend it as though that were what really mattered, that Zen really mattered, or Theravada Buddhism really mattered. It doesn't. Now, in case any of you find this all a little upsetting, um, <laughs> let me just give you another quotation, this time from uh, Deshan. Um, I don't know what the Japanese of Deshan is, but he was one of the uh, 9th century Chan masters in um, Tang Dynasty China. 
And this is a passage from a discourse he gave to his monks. He says, here there are no ancestors and no Buddhas. Bodhidharma is a stinking foreigner. Shakyamuni is a dried up piece of shit. (laughs) Awakening and Nirvana are posts to tether donkeys. The scriptural canon was written by devils. It's just paper for wiping infected skin boils. None of these things will save you. What is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. Now, what, is, what I find interesting is how a passage like that has become domesticated. So that when, you know, I read it out, we, I don't know whether you, but many people, I think, will immediately qualify it with a slightly, um, with a sort of ironic smile and say, well, that's Zen, you see. <laughs> that's Zen. In other words, you've somehow compartmentalized it in a way that has somehow neutered it or castrated it, made it safe by calling it Zen. Well, that's what Zen people do. They do this kind of quirky stuff. But we never perhaps consider whether in fact Teishan was being deadly serious. And again, I can present this here uh, in this context and we can perhaps appreciate what he's saying. But let's say I were to go up to, say, the, 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 the Sangha Raja in Bangkok, the senior most bhikkhus in Thailand, and tell him, Shakyamuni is a dried up piece of shit. <laughs> I doubt somehow how, how he would say, oh, well, that's just Zen. It would be deeply <laughs> offensive. Um, and I think we have to uh, recognize how we so readily want to package these statements as though they were part of a nice, polished, finished product called Zen. And in doing so, um, enable us to not take as seriously as we perhaps might what, in fact, Teishan is saying. Teishan is here, I think, making an extremely uh, disconcerting and perhaps for some of us rather upsetting uh, comment. He's saying, look, you're attached to this Buddhism business. It's going to get in the way. You need to just sort of just dump it. And this beautiful final line, uh, realizing the mystery, which I think he's using here really as a in a kind of ironic way for some expression of you know, the most profound spiritual truth, realizing the truth, uh, capital T, of course, is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life, which, if you think about it, is what Matsu did to Pai Chan. He literally grabbed an ordinary person's life by the nose, and twisted it. And that is where this practice, and 
not just Zen practice, but uh, Satipatthana, uh, the placement of mindfulness that the Buddha taught, is likewise breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life. It's the breath, the heartbeat, the pain in the knee, the crows outside. That is what we need to pay more attention to. Instead of these grandiose ideas, instead of ideas like enlightenment or Zen, but to find a way of being more intimately, more totally, uncompromisingly, with the strange, unending flux of what's pouring forth moment to moment. And again, if we take out all of the two and a half thousand years of Buddhism and find ourselves back in the dilemma of Siddhartha Gautama sitting beneath a tree, which in many senses is what the Chan tradition sought to recover, was that primary act of just sitting beneath a tree. We can all do that. And in, that, in many respects, that's what this retreat is all about. It's, it's going back to that primary act of sitting with the sheer nakedness of what's happening in nature. And that's what we're so blessed with here. And that is where we need to begin to become conscious. And yet we're aware, no doubt, of how difficult that can be. The mind would rather do anything but that. We'd rather be recollecting some absurd story that happened 20 years ago, or planning something that may or may not have happened in another month or year, rather than just be fully with what's going on right now. So in many ways, uh, Chan or Zen is this, is this ongoing, open-ended response to life as it happens. And I'd like to conclude with two statements of uh, Yunmen, or Uman in Japanese. Um, he, was, again, he was one of the last figures, the great figures of the Tang period. Um, he was once asked um, some, something like, what is the most profound teaching of the Buddha? And he replied, an appropriate statement. And on another occasion he was asked, what is that teaching that goes beyond everything that the Buddhas and the patriarchs have ever taught? And Yunmen replied, cake. <laughs> And that's where I'll leave it today. <laughs> um, we will develop these things. Don't worry. Um, there's a few minutes left if anyone has a, a question or a comment. Relativity, there is relation. Contingency seems just um, chaotic and by chance. There is, there is, there is an element of relating. 
Believe in history. Yeah. What do you mean? You seem to believe in history. <laughs> um, well, contingency. I, I've struggled for years to try to find a way to express the idea of paticca samudpada in in English that is not some weird Buddhist jargon like dependent origination. I mean, I'm used to that, so I can say it in a group like this. But it's it's pure jargon. I don't like the notion of dependent. That, to me, is too strong. It, it implies the opposite to chance, a kind of determinism. But that's, to me, the weakness of the word dependence. I recognize the problems with contingency. It, it does tend to emphasize too much the other side of things, but I don't understand the word to be just pure chance. It's not, it's not to me, equivalent to chance. Um, the word, in English at least... Uh, you, you are con to be contingent on something. Um, we make contingency plans. In other words, for things that we may not have been able to predict, but are nonetheless going to happen, in which we are going to find ourselves in relationship with. So I don't find contingency as a synonym for just randomness or chance at all. But it points to the fact that um, what happens, what comes about... Um, is something that is inevitably related, connected to things, but in a way that um, is often extremely difficult, if not impossible, ever to fully understand. And so experientially, it appears to be something that just breaks into being. Um, logically, intellectually, I know that it has its causes and conditions and circumstances. I know that it can only occur through my relationships with the world in which I'm embedded, but subjectively, it comes forth in ways that are strange, surprising, perplexing, and unpredictable. That's my justification for using the word contingency. But I would, you know, a conditionality perhaps is a better one. I don't know. I appreciate the effort to translate it but it's problem. As for history, I don't believe in history as some sort of deterministic series of events. But I think the study of history and the study of, what has, of the record of what has happened on this earth provides us with endless examples and illustrations of what I've just named as contingency. And I find that very revealing. I find that Paticca Samupada, dependent origination, is best illustrated for me, by, for example, studying the history of Europe or the history of Buddhism in China. You see all of these different conditions coming together, political, economic, social, geographic, religious, and so forth and so on, and, a, and, and various individual people coming together in this strange mix, and out of that, contingent on those circumstances, we can see uh, the emergence of something we might call Zen Buddhism. And I find that the study of history, uh, or the study of what has happened in the past, if we have problems with the word history, um, illustrates this rather well, as does the study of uh, biology, 
and science. I find all of these things illuminate uh, the contingent nature of life. Um, in, for me, what is, is not just an intellectually intriguing way, but actually uh, it's a very forceful um, encounter with um, a way of seeing the world that I then can somehow translate or bring to bear, let's say, um, on what's happening now. And also in terms of how my actions and those of uh, my friends and colleagues and enemies and so on are likewise preparing the ground, creating circumstances and conditions for what we do not know, but what will follow from our actions now. So in that sense, I would... I, don't, I wouldn't say I believe in history, but I certainly see it as a, a wonderful resource uh, for giving concreteness to these otherwise very abstract ideas. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.